there are people throughout the world that have interesting stories to tell. Stories of heroism, acts of kindness, near-death experiences, successes, and failures. You usually hear of these stories from people that live in another state or country. But what about the stories from within your own community? Everyone has a story to tell. And by everyone, we mean your neighbor, your coworker, the person behind you at church, people you interact with on a daily basis, or maybe even you. Welcome to the DCB Podcast, presented by the Bless Your Heart Nonprofit Corporation. I'm Brennan Mathern, and I'll be your host as we speak to some of the most interesting people in Bayou Lafourche. Living on the bayou means we are routinely faced with obstacles. Time and time again, we prove that Cajuns can overcome any obstacle they are faced with. Today we are sitting with Lauren Laparouse Guidry, a local daughter, wife, and mother from the Thibodeau area who has overcome living with cystic fibrosis, a double lung transplant, and infertility. Lauren, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, like we do every time when we get started here, we'd like to know who's your mom and dad. So tell us about your family, where you're from, and uh, where you grew up. Yes, so I was born in Thibodeau. Um, My parents are James and Michelle Laparouse. They um, currently live in Shriver. We moved to that area when I was about to start high school. Um, Went to, um, you know, normal Thibodeau Catholic High School. Went to E.D. White. Um, Graduated in 2007. Yes. (laughs) Um, And then um, went on to Nichols State. And I graduated from Nichols in 2012 with my bachelor's degree in education. And... um, Married my husband, 2013, and we've been living in Thibodeau ever since. And you mentioned we were talking before uh, you graduate. You graduated uh, from Nichols, and then you actually had a teaching job. You were teaching locally as well. Correct. So I ended up landing my dream job when I graduated from college. I know that doesn't happen often, especially for teachers. They tend to get you know they get what they can get you know. But I ended up getting my dream job at Race and Lower. It was kindergarten classroom. I was working with some like the best of the best. I had a you know great colleagues, a wonderful principal. Um, I was working with um, really closely with my aunt, and that was really exciting for me. And I I think that those you know five years that I spent in the classroom there were probably like some of the best five years that I had. It was just a tremendous job. So that's a good segue into talking about one of the subjects we're here to talk about today. So for our listeners who are not familiar, can you tell us what cystic fibrosis is? Sure. Cystic fibrosis is a genetic disease. Um, I was diagnosed when I was 18 months old, and I was really sick when I was 18 months old, and it kind of, you know, prompted the doctors to do more tests, and uh, eventually they were discovered that I had cystic fibrosis. Um, Once they found out that I had cystic fibrosis, they kind of um, were able to, you know, get everything right, you know, get my nutrition up. I was able to put weight on, and um, they were able to treat the... um, you know, the root causes. I really didn't have um, a lot of trouble until, you know, later, a little bit later in life. I was about 13 before I was put in for what they call a tune-up, like a car. (laughs) Um, Basically what that was is they, you know, would go to the hospital for like two weeks. They'd, you know, give me a bunch of antibiotics, um, you know, pump me full of calories, get me back going, and then um, we'd go home. Um, as I got older, they started doing them at home. They were, I was able to like go in the hospital only for a few days and then go home for the rest of it, which was really easy and, um, really, you know, better for me because I was in school and, you know, I didn't have time to sit in the hospital for two weeks. So 
I understand you have it. You had advanced cystic fibrosis. Talk about what that means and how was life living with that? Sure. So probably when I hit my early twenties, I was finishing up college. Um, I just I started noticing like things that I hadn't hadn't really noticed before: shortness of breath, um, just really tired, um, loss of like weight loss. Um, and I, you know, I've I'm not, you know. I've done my research on it. You know, as I grew older, I started researching, like, you know, things like um, how long do people with cystic fibrosis live? How, you know, what are the, how do we, you know, like, what are the steps to take when you have advanced stage cystic fibrosis? So I knew that there was going to be a point in life where it was going to get to the point where we had to, like, do something, you know, whether it would be, like, transplant, which is something I really didn't want ever at first um but so it wasn't until I was in, like my early 20s I really started to notice some things like like I said the shortness of breath um I remember there was one instance I had gone to Walmart and I was in Walmart and I was like pushing my cart and I was just so out of breath like I couldn't could not catch my breath and when I got into the car you know I unloaded all the groceries and I just got into the car and I like put my head on my steering wheel and I just I couldn't breathe I was just sitting in there and I was like taking these big deep breaths trying to like catch my breath and slow my heart rate down because I could just feel it was like you know beating out of my chest I think that was like the first time that I thought there you know we're gonna this is this is bad we've we've reached a point of we need to we need something else we need to do something so it was at that point that I um you know I started they had put me on oxygen at home which um I was using it at night only at first um, just to help me sleep because they were worried about, you know, your oxygen level saturations drop when you sleep. Everybody's does. But people with cystic fibrosis, it's a little bit, you have to monitor it. Um, so it started out like that, oxygen at night. Then it kind of just got worse. You know, I'd, I'd go to school and teach all day. And then I'd come home and I would, like, hook up to the oxygen tank all night long because I just, it took me that long to, like, recover from being at school all day and not being able to really take, you know, deep breaths. Um, so that kind of went on for a while and then, and I would have like, you know, spurts of like feeling good and then it would just kind of revert back to like the constant coughing, the constant, um, you know, just feeling winded all day. Um, and so right before the transplant, um, I, it was like spring break time. I remember I was like, I was just feeling so terrible, um, Seth was working, my husband Seth, and um, we, he was working, and I was home for spring break, or for um, Mardi Gras, and I remember, like, sitting in my living room and, like, thinking about, like, you're not going to be able to live much longer like this, you know, I remember, like, very, and I remember thinking, like, do I go play my funeral? Do I go, because I, I was, I had reached to the point of, like, where the, the morbid thoughts were, were not morbid to me anymore, they were, like, they were real, you know, and and I thought maybe I should do that. Maybe I should go and like set it all up so that way, like, if it does happen, you know, if I, you know, I do succumb to this illness, like my my parents and my husband don't have to like handle that. And I remember like thinking that during the day, and then like Seth came home, and I remember being like, <sighs> that was like something really, really deep to have to think about today. And I remember like I didn't tell him about it. I didn't really tell anybody about that until after um, the transplant. But that was the moment of like. I knew that it was something was coming, like something was going to happen soon. And um, so that was like Mardi Gras time. And then 
spring break rolled around and we Seth and I actually went to Disney World like two months before the transplant I had a scooter I was rolling around rolling around on a scooter because I remember you know we had had a discussion like you know I, I knew I wasn't gonna be able to walk at all like I'm just you know I'm not silly so we had a scooter we had a really great time we came back and I want to say we were only home for a few days and I was in the hospital again just you know going on the trip you know just wear, wore myself out and um so that was around spring break and then we were kind of entering into the end of school area time frame and um and that's like when it really got when it really got real so all of this all of this happening while you're teaching uh, at the time I know you're sharing with everybody now but at the time I mean I'm sure that you had shared with at least some friends and family you're teaching kindergarten and that must have been uh, a task in and of itself but did, did your teacher, did the other faculty members know what you were going through? Did they have some kind of idea or clue? Uh, and as so you're, like you said, you're, you're teaching them today, going home and being on oxygen at night. Did they have any idea of what you were going through? No, I, I spent a lot of time pre-transplant kind of trying to like, I don't want to say pretend it didn't exist because it's obviously not possible, but I tried to kind of separate my work life and my health life like there were I mean I don't other than my husband who lives with me you know 24 7 and my parents pretty much there weren't a lot of people that were really you know aware of how sick I was I think cystic fibrosis is a silent um, and kind of like an invisible illness unless you really know people it's it's easy to just look at people with cystic fibrosis and be like oh that's just a thin person oh that's just you know because but when you but, you know, I was I was really sick. I was, yeah. And so I, it was just kind of a brave face during the day and then a recharge at night. So ultimately, at, you, you keep talking about before your transplant. So obviously you did get a transplant. I so did. tell us about that story, how that all came to happen and, and how that went down. Sure. So um, it was the week of kindergarten graduation and I was busy, you know, planning and practicing, practicing, practicing sure. with our students. And um, it was a Wednesday, and I just was, like, not feeling like myself. I just – I didn't feel good. I was kind of – felt, like, kind of worn down. But I figured, you know, it's just end-of-the-year stuff. Well, my my mom's youngest sister was having a baby that day, and I wanted to go see the baby at the hospital. But I wanted to make sure that I wasn't, you know, sick. We had had – I had had a few kids in my class with a late case of the flu, and so I just wanted to be sure. And I went to the doctor just thinking, no, eh, it's probably just, like, sinus infection or whatever – well, I got tested, the doctor comes in, and she says, you have the flu. And I was like, no, you know, my whole, I just kept thinking, like, kindergarten graduation, kindergarten graduation. So um, so I had to, like, you know, make the phone call to my principal and tell her, like, I'm so sorry, but I can't, like, I won't be able to be there, you know. And I couldn't go see the baby. Um, so I ended up being home. So that was a Wednesday. Um, I was home Wednesday, Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and my parents were like super concerned. Seth was actually out of town and they were really concerned about me because I was on oxygen. I had the flu. Um, they could tell I just was not like, you know, feeling good. And so my dad ended up coming stay with me a day or two and my mom came one day and then Seth came home on Friday. Well, um, he said Friday is kind of like the last day that I really have like a vivid memory of the day. Um, Saturday, Seth said, you know, he act, acted like I was feeling better. You know, I was kind of moving around more. Um, but then Sunday morning, I woke up and I told Seth, I feel like I'm dying. We need to go to the hospital. 
And that's not not something I had ever ever said to him like that and especially like in the you know in a serious way and so he knew like something was up so <clears throat> I remember we were <laughs> we weren't fighting but we were trying to figure out how to get my oxygen machine in the car because my oxygen tanks were empty so we couldn't bring like the portable and we had to get the one that like you plug into the wall well <laughs> I was like just plug it into the car the car has a little plug-in thing Seth was like trying to explain to me like that's not gonna work like that's too big of a machine and I was like so we ended up just leaving it at home and we went all the way to Tulane because that's where I was seeing doctors so um by the time we got to Tulane my when I when they took my stats at the hospital my oxygen saturation was like in the 70s so that the team at Tulane was starting to freak out because it's super low um they you know they put me in they admitted me into the ER they called my doctor they tried to put the high flow oxygen. That wasn't doing anything. Um, so they they guesstimate that my um, lung function at that time was like about 12%, which everybody's lung function, not everybody's lung function is 100%, but it's definitely not 12. Um, so between Sunday and Monday, that was like a really crazy night. Um, I don't remember any of this. Um you know, it was a crazy, it was crazy because, you know, I knew, and I think I knew that the transplant was coming, but I think I didn't realize it was going to be like this. Um, so they ended up having to intubate me. Well, before they intubated me, you know, my doctor was like, comes in the room and he's like, look, you get intubated and we put you on the transplant list or you don't leave the hospital. So obviously, you know, I said, okay, well, that's what I want to do. So they did. They um, intubated me, and then they transferred me to Oshner because um, Oshner is where the transplant was happening. So um, so I went that whole week at Oshner just going through tests. They, I mean, they literally test you for everything um, before they'll give you new organs, um, you know, doing in, going through insurance, going through, you know, there's all kind of responsibilities on the patient and on the family and things like that that they have to go through. Um, so that was happening uh, Seth caught the shingles <laughs> one day in the hospital, which was, like, insane because, you know, it's like he was uh, – my transplant doctor was like, you know, you probably caught the shingles because you stress. And Seth's like, I'm not stressed out. And my doctor was like, what? Your wife's on the in the hospital. She's about to get new organs and you're not stressed out. He was like, no, I'm not. I was like, okay. So um, so he ended up having to be sent home. So, um, so this is about Memorial Day weekend of 2016. Um, the Friday, Seth was home. The maternity doctor came in and he said, okay, it's Memorial Day weekend. Um, I'll see you before the end of the weekend with some lungs. And my mom was there with me and she was like, what do you mean? And he was like, it's Memorial Day weekend. A lot of things happen. Sure enough, he was right. Um, Monday morning, knocking at the door of the, of the hospital room. And he comes in and tells my mom, he's like, I think we have lungs. And they, you know, they use the word think and maybe because it can go all the way up until like surgery time before they say, ah, no, those lungs are not going to work. But he seemed really confident in the lungs that he, you know, that they had. Um, so they started prepping me. They called Seth. They're like, you can come back to see her, you know. Um, and so they prepped me all day, all day Monday. And then they took me into surgery Monday night. Um, about I think about 10, between 9 and 10 p.m., my whole family was, like, full on in the waiting area at Oshner. I mean, 
and they're so loud. So I remember like Seth telling me after he's like, me and your dad and your dad's friend had to like go find places to hide because they were just you know like they were they were loud and they were trying not to be sad so they were like joking around everything and then delirium sets in everybody's laughing and cackling you know um so the surgery lasted all night um the i consider my transplant date on the 31st because that's when the lungs were actually like placed in um inside my chest and so um surgery ended i want to say about 5 a.m And then they were able to see me a little bit later that morning. And um, after this, right after surgery, the doctor said they look great. You know, those are the lungs. Those were it. And so I was, you know, I'll just going back. Like, I don't remember any of this because I was intubated. And, they were, you know, I had the sedation medication was like crazy. And so the only thing I really, I remember a few instances of like seeing people. Like I had a friend um, and she came and I remember she was such a hot mess. She was crying and I, she was like wiping all her tears. And I was like, I remember being like awake and like trying to tell her to stop, like waving my hands, you know, like, stop, stop. It's okay. And she, uh, you know, I remember her, I remember like my old, my principal had come see me and I remember her, you know, just being there. Um, I don't know. It was just, you know, things that I remember, like little things, but the next big thing that I remember was I was, I woke up and I was in a hospital room and I looked around and it was just me and I, I remember being like by myself that never happens and then I saw my mom sitting over there and um I kind of like coughed or something like I did like <clears throat> like I cleared my throat she sw- she whipped around so fast and I was like what happened like what are we doing here and she gave me this look of you don't know what we're doing here and I said yeah like wh- why are we in the hospital and she kind of had to, she had to like take a minute and she, I remember her saying like you got new lungs I was like, what? No, I don't. I have old lungs. Listen, and I tried to like cough and it was not the cough that I had before. It was not the CF cough. So obviously right at the beginning, you know, you you obviously had some struggles and and there had to be some time to recuperate. Mm -hmm. Now that you've, now that all that time has passed, how can you talk about life post-transplant? We've, you know, we've heard stories from people over over the years uh, from, from all over the world about, you know, either success stories or struggles after transplant. So how has it been for you? Sure. So I I think there's often a um, a misconception about um, when people have, when cystic fibrosis patients have a lung transplant, it's not a cure by any means. And I think that, like, some people, you know, just think, oh, she's, um, cystic fibrosis affects all areas of the body um your digestive system your your sinuses your i mean just a lot and so the lung transplant didn't fix any of that you know like i still have to see the ent all the time i still have to take you know the the pancreatic enzymes to help my food digest um but it did but it what it did is the new lungs will not be infected with cf which is amazing because that's you know what causes so many issues um so life post-transplant I mean, it was, it was just for somebody living with a cough constantly for 25 years, it was amazing to be able to like just talk and not get winded or, you know, to walk around and not get winded or, you know, and not have this like nasty, like junky cough all the time. And so that was like the biggest thing that was, you know, that I took, I took away from it and it just gave me like a whole new lease on life. You know I mean? You just think about like, 
you know, a patient with cystic fibrosis is just, there's always something, you know, there's always something. And it was, you know, it was just nice, you know, not always having, you know, the worry and the fear um, initially. I mean, sure, now, you know, there's a lot of things to worry about now. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's it's definitely not something I would trade. I would I would do it, I would do it again in a heartbeat if I had to, you know, just because it, it totally opened up a whole new world for me and my husband. Well, you mentioned uh, all the stuff to worry about now. So when, when something, when the news like last year of COVID-19 comes out and the nature of the illness, what, what's your reaction as uh, someone living with CF and, and w- what's your thought process about what happens if I get this? So it was, I was, I was terrified, obviously, because nobody, you know, seeing what you were, what we were seeing on the news was just, you know, it was awful. Um, I had a sense of peace about it, though, I'll be honest, because I felt all of these things like the transplant and the, you know, the amount of time that I spent on the list, you know, and all these things, they happened for a reason. I do believe that, like, if God leads me to it, then he'll get me through it. And I and I kind of had to take that mindset about COVID because I couldn't let myself get caught up in like the what ifs and the, you know, I was very, I'm thankful that, you know, the, I work, um, I work for Nichols and they were very understanding about, you know, working from home, you know, keeping us safe and all of the precautions that they were taking. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time at home. We spent a lot of time just, you know, not, not interacting with people because, you know, you got to protect yourself. So I think that's kind of my stance on it. Wow. So if you, looking back at, at the transplant, obviously you're here because someone else uh, unfortunately passed away. So with that family, if you could say anything to the donor's family, what would you say? Thank you. <laughs> you know, I don't, I, you know, I had, I pinned this long letter, you know, explaining, you know, why, you know, I needed it and, you know, all the things that I wanted to do with them, you know, and I think that um, I you I think about that person daily because I I get up every day and I wake I wake up and I kiss my husband and I eat breakfast with my kid that and I I get to go to a job that I love and I'm able to continue my education all because of this person and so that's you know. I don't know if the if they read the letter. I don't know if the donor's family have read it. Um, I hope they did. You know, I hope that they read it and they. I'm okay with no response. You know, I, I get that some people just, you know, it's just not what they want to. You know, they don't maybe don't want to respond and that's okay. Um, but I just want I wanted them to know that the lungs are not going to waste. You know, like they're not. They weren't just given to somebody who's going to take them for granted. Like I don't. I don't take them for granted at all. And so, uh, you know, that's why you know, that's why I do what I do. You know, that's why I go to work. That's why I'm back in school. That's why I'm, you know, you know, raising my son the way we're raising him because it's just I want them to know that these lungs were meant for something bigger. So you mentioned you have a son, and, and that brings us to our next topic. So spoiler alert, this has a good ending. But, <laughs> but let's let's talk about while you're battling all this, even before your transplant, you got some other news from your doctor as, as you and Seth are starting your marriage. Right. So, um, you know, kids were always in the plan for Seth and I, although in the back of, I think, both of our minds, we knew that it would be a little more complicated than just like a normal, um, you know, pregnancy. And so 
right after we got married, um, they, you know, they said, if you want to have a baby, now's the time to do it. So we like, okay. So, you know, you know, we try for a few months, nothing's really happening. The, so we end up getting referred to a, um, a high risk doctor, high risk fertility doctor because of my condition, it would have been a high risk. Well, we saw the um, high risk fertility doctor for about a year. And then at, throughout that year, like I just got worse like sicker and sicker my lung function kept going down just was not a good um overall situation for me and my cf doctor kind of at the end of that year was like look i really don't think it's a good idea he was like um i just you know i think it's going to take too much on your body it's gonna be too much on your body you're gonna it's gonna really drag you down you're gonna you're gonna struggle with having a successful pregnancy and being able to carry it full term well i'm stubborn and i didn't really like listen so I kept going to the fertility doctor well um at the time the doctor was ready to move on to like actual treatments so like you know whether it be you know whatever it was and so but they needed approval from the CF doctor because they're not gonna you know well he wouldn't give it and I was just devastated I mean I was like what are you talking about like I want to have a baby I want to be a mom and you know Seth is like he's definitely the level-headed one in our relationship um he's like you know Lauren like I want you here you know he's like yeah a baby would be great you know I, I would love to have a family with you but I want you to be a part of it and that really hit me and I was like yeah okay I get it you know I get that so transplant happens and then um it's kind of like nobody really at first wanted to talk about pregnancy and finally um you know they were like you in order for you to get pregnant, or to, for in order for you to carry a baby, we'd have to take you completely off of all your anti-rejection medication for nine months. If you get pregnant right away, like if, you know, and then, like, you're putting yourself at risk and your baby at risk for nine months because you're not, your lungs, you can go into rejection, you know, you can get, it was just, it, the risk was entirely too high. And so, um, and I knew that. And at this, at this point, you know, you go through something like when you go through a transplant and your life is saved by something like that, I had to, like, accept it. You know, I was like, okay, I get it. I get that. Um, so we, we explored some other options. We, you know, you know, talked about a surrogate. We talked about um, Louisiana has some crazy surrogate laws. So we kind of, we didn't really, that really wasn't an option for us. Um, and then one day I was scrolling through Facebook <laughs> and um, I'm part of I was part of this infertility group this around the area um, and this um, there was this post and it said baby boy due in April birth parents looking for adoptive parents and then it had like a lawyer's name and a lawyer's phone number this was in January when I saw this post so I like screen capped it and I sent it to Seth and I was like is this how people are like adopting babies now and so, and something I had talked about adoption, but not like enough, but his response back to me was, I'm ready when you are. And I remember, <laughs> I remember I was at work and I was like, what did he just say? And I was like, just like floored. Cause I was like, that was not what I was expecting you to say. I was expecting you to tell me to be quiet and like, you know, ignore it. So I picked up the phone when I called and, um, you know, they gave me all the information about it. It was this, you know, this couple who he has kids, she had kids they had kids together and they just they knew they could not have another one they just were not in a place to be able to um you know love and support another baby and so um when the baby was due in April so this is January so it's like 
So we talked to him. We I went home and I told I looked at Seth. I was like, we gotta have a talk. Like we have to talk about this because this is like, this is big. You know, this is like life changing. And he was like, I'm, I think we should do it. And I was just so we spent like two days working on our adoption portfolio, and um, we sent it to the to the lawyer and he presented it to the couple, and they wanted to meet us. So this was like January 2016, no 2018, and like. They were having, they were, had this massive freeze. So like the first meeting that we set up, we couldn't do because it was freezing, frozen everywhere. So we had to reschedule it. And um, we finally met with them. And it was like, I don't know. It was just such an interesting, immediate connection. You know, like, it's like his birth mom and I could be friends. Like, you know, outside of that whole situation. Like we, I, I could have been friends with her. And... And they were just honest, you know, they were just like, this is just too much for us. Um, and so we like finishing up this conversation with them and, you know, we're kind of looking around like it's like kind of awkward at the end because we really don't know what to do or what to say yet, you know. And um, so the the little, um, the lady, the adoption liaison was there and she was like, all right, well, um, you know, we'll let, we'll, we'll be in contact. We're going to let, you know, his birth parents make a decision. And his um, Sutton's birth mom was like, oh, I know what I want to do. And I was like, what? I was like freaking out. And then she's like, I want y'all to have, I want y'all to adopt this baby. This is y'all baby. And I remember like Seth and I just looking at each other. And I was like, and I was like, like puddle of tears. And Seth was crying. And we were just like, are you sure? And she's like, yes, yes, this is y'all baby. I just feel like this is y'all's. And gosh, it just like was like fast track from there. Sutton was actually born a month early, so he was born in March. So we had you know two months to get everything together, but. Just like the transplant, that was a whirlwind. This was a whirlwind, just kind of how we do stuff, I guess, in our house. But, um, it's you know, it was great. You know, it was, the whole process was amazing. Um, I have nothing, like, nothing bad to say about his birth parents. And I think that's the way it, I hoped it would be, you know. Like, I don't want Sutton to ever, um, I want him to know, you know, like, your birth mom loved you a lot. She loved you so much that she wanted, you know, dad and I to, to raise you and so and you know and I I think that's just that's the most important thing and, and he's such a great kid he's like he's the absolute best and so it's just been a really great um it's been a really great process and I think that all the struggles and all the hurdles that we hit along the way are kind of you know we're making up for it now <laughs> <laughs> That, that's just truly an amazing story, and really that answers the question, you can truly find anything on Facebook. <laughs> it's so funny because we actually, when we got married, I knew the priest, but I messaged him on Facebook to see if he would marry us. And so it was like kind of like a joke, like, Lauren will find anything on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> you're, the, you're the go-to yeah. person now. Yeah. So Lauren, uh, again, thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing your story with us today. And Hopefully, uh, for, for anyone who has friends and family members who are suffering uh, with, with some of these issues, that uh, this can kind of shed some light on it and, and at least tell, at least we've heard one person's story uh, and, and your struggle with it. But now comes the really hard part. We have some rapid fire questions for okay, you, like ready. we do for every guest. Okay. Uh, you can give us a one word answer or expand on your answer. If you feel you need to explain, it's completely up to you. You ready? Okay, I'm ready. All right. What's your go to order at a Down the Bayou restaurant? Anything with rice. I like stew. I like gumbo. Um, I'm not 
I don't eat just anybody's jambalaya, but a stew or a gumbo is usually my go-to. And so that's where the expression cook some rice comes from. Cook some you rice, babe. Pretty much, that's what we say all the <laughs> time can, at our house. You <laughs> can put, cook anything with it. Uh, okay, so potato salad. Do you like it in the gumbo or on the side? On the side. Okay. Uh, jambalaya, red or brown? Red. Really? Okay. Yes. So I have a um, Sutton's godmother. She makes the best shrimp jambalaya, and it's red. And I... That's kind of like the standard of what I hold all the other jambalayas to. So I don't think I had brown jambalaya until I was well into my teens. Really? I grew up only eating red. Um, what's your favorite Cajun French word or phrase and its meaning? I don't really know a whole lot. Um, I mean, Ted Durr is like the, <laughs> you know, the go-to right hard head. I feel like that describes a lot of people in my life, like myself. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it a few times. <laughs> All right, this is an easier one. Favorite snowball flavor? Wedding cake with condensed milk. Good choice. All right, so here's the final one. This is the most important. Okay. When a boat is passing and you're in a car, is the bridge open or closed? Uh, It's open. No, it's closed because... (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I don't like this question. Next. (laughs) That's a good answer. There we go. All right, Lauren. Well, thank you. That'll do it for this episode of the DTV Podcast. Thanks to our guest, Lauren LaPerouse-Gidry. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You can subscribe to the DTB Podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at the DTB Podcast. You can also follow Bless Your Heart Nonprofit on Facebook or on Twitter at BYH Nonprofit. You can donate to Bless Your Heart on Venmo at Bless Your Heart Nonprofit and on PayPal at blessyourheartnonprofit at gmail.com. That'll wrap it up for us on the DTB Podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button for our next episode. Until then, this is Brennan Mathern. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.